Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity entitled, Advancing Global Care with Emerging BTKI in Relapse Refractory CLL, Connecting Hematology Leaders to Worldwide Learners, is provided by Access Medical Education and is supported by an educational grant from Lilly. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements as well as the learning objectives. Here is Dr. Anthony Mado. Hello and welcome to this CME activity entitled Advancing Global Care with Emerging BTK Inhibitors in Relapse Refractory CLL, Connecting Hematology Leaders to Worldwide Learners. My name is Dr. Anthony Mado. I'm your moderator for today, and I'm pleased to be joined by two international colleagues, Dr. Toby Ayer from Oxford and Dr. Tal Manier from Leeds, two colleagues from the UK who are representing expert opinions from Europe. Today, I'll be discussing the most recent clinical data and providing our insights on current and emerging evidence supporting the clinical utility of BTK inhibitors in relapse and refractory CLL. Let's begin. First, I'll briefly review the key BTK inhibitor trials in relapse refractory CLL. I want to start by just reminding everyone where we are with BTK inhibitors. The first BTK inhibitor approved both in the frontline and in the relapse refractory settings was ibrutinib, but now we have long-term follow-up from the frontline setting, and we know that the discontinuation rate for ibrutinib is about 53%, with more than half of the discontinuations due to intolerance, and the second most common reason for discontinuation due to clinical resistance. And so therefore, by studying ibrutinib in the long-term setting, we're identifying the major reasons for discontinuation, either adverse event or progression of disease due to resistance to this particular molecule, highlighting some of the limitations for the first-in-class BTK inhibitor. I want to start by highlighting the adverse events associated with BTK inhibitors, the covalent inhibitors, particularly looking at ibrutinib versus acalabrutinib versus zanubrutinib. And the three BTK inhibitors are covalent inhibitors, but they have differences in their selectivity for off-targets, with acalabrutinib being the most specific BTK inhibitor, with ibrutinib and zanubrutinib having similar specificity or selectivity for other targets. We also have new data that are available looking across trials and in direct comparison for the BTK inhibitors compared to one another. Particularly here, I'm highlighting data for ibrutinib, acalabrutinib, and zanubrutinib from the frontline trials, the ECOG trial, the Alliance trial, Resonate 2, acalabrutinib, the Elevate trial, and zanubrutinib, the Sequoia trial, where you can see the amount of follow-up and then the degree of specific adverse events like hypertension, cardiac events, atrial fibrillation, neutropenia, and infection. Of course, we sometimes get ourselves into trouble by doing cross-trial comparisons, but it does look that the AEs associated with ibrutinib, particularly cardiovascular adverse events, seem to be more frequently observed as compared to acalabrutinib and zanabrutinib. Here I'm highlighting some retrospective data published by Dr. Lindsay Roker, highlighting differences in the time-to-treatment discontinuation between ibrutinib and acalabrutinib, favoring acalabrutinib. Again, retrospective data, but a snippet of information suggesting that there may be differences between these molecules, both in terms of their tolerability, as well as in terms of the clinical resistance developing while patients are on these continuous inhibitors. Of course, now we have the head-to-head comparisons, and those are probably the most relevant. The first I'll mention is Elevate RR, head to head comparison of acala versus ibrutinib in the relapse refractory setting in a select patient population. This was a non-inferiority trial. The trial was positive in that the acalabrutinib was non-inferior to ibrutinib, both from the perspective of PFS, the primary endpoint, and overall survival. 
What was more exciting about this data was a window into the differences in terms of adverse events. And here you can see atrial fibrillation, less common with a calibrutinib. Hypertension, significantly less common with a calibrutinib as compared to ibrutinib. And then we have longer term follow-up associated with this study and we can sort of delve into the different adverse events. But the general picture is that for the adverse events that really matter to us, the cardiovascular events and bleeding to a certain extent, including hypertension, AFib, et cetera, they seem to be better with acalabrutinib as compared to ibrutinib. Now, we also had data presented most recently at the ASH meeting and then presented in New England Journal of Medicine for the Alpine trial, looking at the comparison of zanubrutinib versus ibrutinib. Again, a head-to-head comparison in the relapse setting different primary endpoint, different patient population, but the overall response rate greatly favored zanubrutinib versus ibrutinib. And with a median of 29.6 months follow-up, there was also an improvement in progression-free survival. But a similar theme in terms of cardiovascular events, particularly AFib, favored zanubrutinib over ibrutinib. Although interestingly, hypertension here was similar between the two molecules. So that gets me to our panel discussion. And I want to throw this out to both of our faculty panelists. First of all, it would be great if you could highlight, in your opinion, the differences in European practices regarding the covalent inhibitors I've just reviewed. I want to hear from your country's perspective and Europe in general, how does one pick and choose between these different BTK inhibitors? Toby, you want to start? Yeah, great. Thank you, Anthony. Thanks for that overview. I think the first thing to say is it's it's great to have options now. We're moving into an era where there are a number of BTK inhibitors that we potentially can use. Ibrutinib and acalabrutinib have been licensed and approved for quite a while in the frontline and relapse setting. And recently we've seen approval for xanabrutinib again in the frontline and relapse setting. Now, of course, availability of those agents is dependent on reimbursement in individual countries. And at the moment, we have quite broad approval for acalabrutinib in the UK from line and relapse as monotherapy and relapse for ibrutinib. I think in answer to your question about sort of how do you choose between the BTK inhibitors, clearly the second generation BTK inhibitors look more selective and have an improved toxicity profile compared to ibrutinib. And so it's certainly my opinion that one should be choosing a second generation BTK inhibitor before ibrutinib now. I think we're moving into that era and I think there are relatively few patients where ibrutinib would be the primary agent of choice. Between acalabrutinib and zanabrutinib, there's obviously a number of nuances there in terms of particularly toxicity profile and slight differences in, as you mentioned, Anthony, hypertension, atrial fibrillation rates, general off-target toxicity. And of course, the differences in the Alpine study and the Elevate RR study also can be discussed in great detail, but essentially are different studies with different primary endpoints with different follow-up in different patient populations. So I think it's a little bit difficult to cross-compare across them. So my view basically is acalabrutinib and zanabrutinib represent two standard of care options now in most patients. Paul, do you basically agree? Anything to add? No, I think Toby has covered this very nicely. And I think the European practice as well as the UK practice is pretty much reflecting that we're using the second generation BTK inhibitors. I think it would be interesting to see as the Zanibrutinib gets its approval and what is the uptake from that perspective, because it is the first trial actually, which has shown superiority over Ibrutinib, which is obviously a very nice debate to have. But I think whether you can do a cross-trial comparison is not justified at this moment in time, in my opinion. But I think the most important thing is we have got options now, as Toby quite rightly said so. And then just briefly, Charles, just to follow up, this will definitely be an education for me. We In the U.S., many practitioners are using the NCCN guidelines. I'm guessing in Europe, more the ESMO guidelines. Can you maybe just highlight some differences or similarity between these two and how the ESMO guidelines are guiding practice in the U.K. and Europe? 
So I think asthma guidelines usually are lagging behind the NCCN guidelines, really. The issue really is that as the practice is changing very quickly, our guideline procedure is a bit slower. We get the EMA approval, but the guidelines change over time. And then it is very much dependent on the reimbursement of the molecule in individual countries. For example, in UK, we can still not use ibrutinib in the frontline setting because it was never funded by the NHS apart from TP53 deleted cohort. So I think we are in that process of getting access to zanibrutinib and it is very much country dependent how these molecules are incorporated into the practice. If you look at the asthma guidelines still at the moment from 2021, we still have venetoclaxib and approval for unfit patients. Whereas in UK, we are able to use that combination in the frontline setting, just highlighting the fact that they do lag a little bit behind. And it is very much dependent on individual country, how the reimbursement process happens and how long would it take. Thanks so much. That's a great overview in terms of some similarities and differences between what options we have. In the U.S., we have Ibrutinib, Acala, and Zanibrutinib approved. And I think many of us are excited about the next generation non-covalent BTK inhibitors, which we'll talk more about in the upcoming sections, Pirtobrutinib and Nemtobrutinib in particular. Now, I want to delve into the topic of sequential management after a covalent BTK inhibitor. Here, we're really thinking, again, the major reasons for discontinuation are resistance and intolerance, when those events happen, what do we do next? And I think this is an important topic in a world where none of the therapies are curative and we need to sequence from therapy to therapy in order to help patients to do well in the long term. Here I'm highlighting a slide that's been presented many times in the past, again, highlighting those differences between resistance and intolerance, limiting covalent BTK inhibitors. And I think every one of us face this in the clinic every day where we see patients who just can't tolerate ibrutinib, for example, or acalabrutinib, for example, or they're on a drug for four years and all of a sudden develop a resistance mutation in BTK or PLC gamma 2. So what are the options for these patients? Here, I want to highlight two studies without getting into the specifics, but just when talking about the intolerance question, the data presented by Kerry Rogers and Maziar Shadman looking at switching from ibrutinib to acala or ibrutinib or acala to zanubrutinib really, I think, highlight the difference between the first and second generation molecules. And the take home for the acala sequencing study was for the large part, you could switch from ibrutinib to acalabrutinib safely, and the responses were durable. And the same is true for zanubrutinib, just for example, highlighting that 65% of patients did not experience recurrence of any of their prior intolerance events, very similar data with acalabrutinib. So that's the intolerance data. I want to jump first to a question for both of you guys. And just if you can give me your thoughts, we want to jump really to resistance more so than intolerance. What causes covalent BTK inhibitor resistance and how is it identified in your practice, either clinically or molecularly? I think the covalent BTK inhibitor resistance is primarily related to the drug pressure and basically where the drug binds to covalently is the cysteine 481 areas, then that's the ATP binding site. And over time, especially in the relapsed refractory space and patients with high-risk disease, the cysteine 481 undergoes a mutation. And as a result of that, the covalent BTK inhibitors start becoming ineffective as a result of that because BTK undergoes autophosphorylation after that. There are some differences, actually, in terms of when we see some resistant mutations, like with Zanabrutinib, we find some other mutations like L528W mutation as well. But the primary mechanism of resistance is the point mutation that we're seeing in the cysteine 481 area. Thanks so much. Any other alternative mechanisms of resistance to highlight? Or I think it's largely that the BTK mutations and the downstream are the story. But Toby, anything to add? 
I think they're obviously the main mutations. Clearly, as Tal mentioned, there are some alternative mutations that we've seen in small patient numbers with xanabrutinib, which may have implications for subsequent sort of sequencing of therapy. And there's actually been a recent European analysis showing that actually the covalent binding site mutations occur in not all patients. Actually, perhaps a third of patients don't have these. And I think it's a, a little bit unknown, the mechanisms of resistance of some of those patients. So there's certainly more work to do in a proportion. But as mentioned, that dominant mutation is is seen in the CIS481 covalent binding site. And Toby, we're going to talk about the non-covalent inhibitors a lot in the next section, but just briefly, could you outline the differences between a covalent and a non-covalent BTK inhibitor? How do they differ in your mind? Yeah, that's a great question. It's really important to understand this when you're thinking about using a non-covalent BTK inhibitor. So there's a number of key differences, but two key differences are the fact that the binding of a non-covalent BTK inhibitor is not reliant on the covalent binding site. It's kind of in the name, really, but that's the really key thing, that actually the BTK inhibitor can bind in the ATP pocket of BTK and inhibit BTK without requiring the covalent binding site. So if you have a mutation in the covalent binding site, you can still inhibit BTK. So that's really key. And that's sort of the unique nature of these agents. The other point is you've got also reversible binding, which may have implications for more proliferative disease as well. So those are the two key points. And then Tal and Toby, we're going to talk about the data for pirtobrutinib and nemtobrutinib. But just in your opinion, what are the most compelling data to support the use of one or both of these agents in the relapse refractory setting? I know we could spend all day talking about how exciting the data are, but just a couple of the highlights. What's really grabbed you over the last couple of years from these data sets that have been presented? And what trials are you excited to see coming up in the near future in terms of results? I think in terms of, we've looked at the Bruin data, looking at the pertobrutinib monotherapy data for a very large set of patients who, a lot of those patients had double refractory disease, which means that they were resistant to a covalent BTK inhibitor as well as a BCL2 inhibitor. And there is data to support that these patients' outcomes were very poor. And even in those patients, it was really mind-blowing how these drugs were effective in controlling the CLL and prolonging the lives of the patients. So I think that was really exciting for me to see. Now, the next step really is how these molecules are going to be developed in the earlier lines of therapy. What combination therapies are we going to see and whether we're going to get these patients into deeper remissions by combination therapy better than the covalent BTK inhibitors. So I think that future outcomes with multiple other trials like this Bruin 3 to one trial, as well as the other trials looking at the combination of photobrutinib with venetoclax rituximab versus venetoclax rituximab is very exciting to see really how these molecules will be developed in the near future. Toby? Yeah, I'd agree with those points. I think from the Bruin study, we've got a very clear efficacy for pertobrutinib in the post-covalent BTK inhibitor setting. It works very well in some of those high-risk groups that Tar mentioned, as well as those that have been exposed to nearly every drug you can use in CLL up until now. But also gratifying that the activity looks equally promising in those with P53 mutations, those with CIS481 mutations. So really sort of proving the kind of clinical proof of principle that this agent is active in patients who've been previously resistant to covalent BTK inhibitors. I think moving forward, the ongoing clinical trials, the CLL321 trial will hopefully help establish its role in the post-covalent BTK setting, but there are other clinical studies, as mentioned, so the 322 study in combination with venetoclax rituximab may well uh, help bring the agent further forward in the treatment pathway. 
Great points, guys. And I think just for the audience, I will summarize some of the key data from the Bruin study and the Bellwave study, just highlighting some of the most recent data associated with pirtabrutinib and also nemtabrutinib. So for the Bruin trial, it's probably the largest phase one, two trial I've seen in quite a while for CLL. Data were presented at the most recent ASH meeting on 247 patients with CLL a heavily pretreated patient population with a lot of high-risk features, including about 40% having a mutation in BTK. Most patients who discontinued a prior covalent BTK inhibitor, which is one of these hot topics that we mentioned earlier, did so in the setting of progression of disease, about three quarters and about one quarter discontinued in the setting of adverse event. So just to get to the highlight, most interesting data, I think here are the response rate data. Overall response rate is up to 82.2%. Nearly every patient benefited in terms of a reduction in lymphadenopathy, including patients who had prior venetoclax, those so-called double exposed patients, and patients who had the BTK mutations, also regardless for the reason for discontinuation. We saw a median progression-free survival presented for the study now at 19.6 months, with now a median follow-up of 19.4 months, and even a median for the heavily pretreated patient population who had had five prior lines of therapy, including the double exposed component to all of those patients where the median was impressive at 16.8 months. We also got to look at some subgroups across the study. PFS looked very similar regardless of the BTK mutation status, regardless of patient age. So older patients did quite well with this molecule. In patients who had a 17P deletion or a P53 mutation, very similar PFS. And then, of course, for those pentavalent failure patients, those who had a BTK inhibitor, chemo, CD20, BCL2, MPI3K, essentially exhausted everything, they had an excellent progression-free survival that was presented. Of course, when you have a continuous therapy, we've talked about adverse events. You want to make sure it's well-tolerated. The AE table speaks for itself in terms of the proportion of patients who've had high-grade AEs. They were low. The proportion of patients who've had a cardiovascular event, like any grade AFib or flutter, was 2.8%. And then the discontinuation rate due to an adverse event was still low at almost 20 months of follow-up of 2.6%. Bellwave is a trial that neither Toby nor Tal mentioned so far, but this is another molecule that's a non-covalent BTK inhibitor, a little bit of a less BTK-specific inhibitor called nemtabrutinib. This drug has now been presented several times looking at its activity in CLL Richter's and non-Hodgkin lymphoma, and we've included some of the most recent data looking at progression-free survival and duration of response, demonstrating that responses can be quite durable to this molecule. And then in across subgroups, I think most importantly, you see a double-exposed BTK mutated patients, DEL17 positive patients, and IGHV unmutated patients, very similar overall response rates ranging between 50% and 58%. The ongoing trials were already mentioned by Toby that are exciting to us are the Bruin CLL321 trial. This is the phase three randomized trial in the relapse refractory setting, looking at pirtabrutinib versus investigator's choice, Idella rituximab or bendamustine rituximab, an important registrational trial for patients. I think many people who are involved in the CLL community are participating in this trial, and hopefully these results will lead to an approval for this molecule. Then there's the Bruin CLL 322 trial, which is also a relapse refractory trial, but here, Instead of using pirtobrutinib as a monotherapy, continuous therapy, this is a time-limited triplet versus doublet, Ben-R, which is a standard of care as per the Murano trial, plus or minus pirtobrutinib with a PFS endpoint and important data collected on MRD. So two trials that we're very excited about. 
Nemtavrutinib is also being studied in a phase three trial. Here you have a frontline trial of Nemta versus investigator's choice of BR or FCR in a non-P53 aberrant patient population. Now we'll delve into a little bit more of a discussion about the double refractory patient. This is the patient who's exhausted the exciting possibilities of the covalent BTK inhibitors and venetoclax. And here's an algorithm that I put together a while ago, just trying to define what a double refractory patient is. By no means is this the final definition, but when you start to have different ways of giving covalent inhibitors and venetoclax either sequentially or together, time-limited or continuous, is we're going to really need to define what it means to be exposed to both agents and then what it means to be refractory to both agents. And in terms of standard of care for these patients, probably in terms of approved agents, none of us would argue passionately for any molecule, including the PI3K inhibitors, but some options to think about, particularly if you're still sensitive to it, include venetoclax retreatment, the non-covalent BTK inhibitors on a clinical trial, CAR-T, and then I would throw in there what people think about now use of chemotherapy in non-chemo-exposed patients as an option, PI3K inhibitors and stem cell transplantation. We already highlighted, so I won't go into this in great detail, but one nice thing about the Bruin trial and also the Bellwave study was that we did see double-exposed patients experiencing durable responses to the non-covalent BTK inhibitors. By far and away, the largest series was in the Bruin study. And there you have a large number of patients who have previously seen venetoclax and a covalent BTK inhibitor having a durable response. And so of course, what Toby does and Tal does and I do and others in the field are thinking about how are we gonna incorporate these new and exciting molecules into our clinical algorithms. And of course, this is a little bit forward thinking. This is an algorithm that I put together a while back, just imagining if the non-covalents were approved how would I incorporate them into my sequencing strategy for patients in the relapse and refractory setting? So I'll ask Dr. Muneer and Dr. Ayer, any notable differences between the potential treatment algorithm that I discuss and what your current practice is or what you imagine your practice will be once these molecules are approved? No, I think you raised some very important points here. I think clearly we have highly active agents. Venetoclax-based therapy generally is fixed duration now, continuous covalent BTK inhibition. And in the future, we'll have covalent BTK inhibition in combination with venetoclax's fixed duration. So one of the key things will be defining whether a patient is resistant or exposed to both those agents, as you mentioned. I think at least initially, until we have evidence to the contrary, the non-covalent BTK inhibitors will generally take their place after a covalent BTK inhibitor. And you could debate whether they should come ahead of venetoclax-based therapy if you use a covalent BTK inhibitor in the frontline setting. I think probably both sequencing paradigms are very reasonable. But in essence, we're going to have three highly active classes of therapy, which patients will be able to sequence through over potentially many, many decades. The question of where cellular therapies will fit in that algorithm in younger, high-risk patients will still remain, but we'll have an increasing number of options in the future. Dr. Manier? I think that we've got two classes of drug, the BTK inhibitors and the venetoclax-based therapy, which will serve a lot of our CLL patients quite well. I think we will have these double refractory patients which will come through and essentially we now got a class of drug by which we are going to be salvaging those patients. And if you look at the cellular therapy data, it doesn't look any better than the non-covalent BTK inhibitors, but maybe you can argue that the tolerability is so much better as compared to any cellular therapy. So I think the main focus really is to 
give the BTK inhibitor therapy the maximum chance to extend the life of a BTK inhibitor therapy if we are going to go for a continuous therapy. And that is something I really want to stress upon because if we start stopping the treatment early on, then we kind of lose the class effect very quickly. And that's where the second generation BTK inhibitors, the covalent BTK inhibitors are really important. I think I completely agree with Toby that I think in terms of the non-covalent BTK inhibitors at the moment, they are going to be following the path of covalent BTK inhibitor and venetoclax-based therapy. But you never know that we might see that when we combine the non-covalent BTK inhibitor with venetoclax-based therapy, whether we get deeper responses. I don't know, but that's what's exciting about the new trials, the upcoming phase three trials that hopefully would be able to answer some of these burning questions. Great summary, both of you guys. Now we're going to delve into our next section, which is the practical application case learning lab. We want to talk about cases. So I'm going to highlight three cases and would love for you guys to give some feedback on management. Of course, we're not going to go into the great detail here, but just kind of a snapshot in terms of what you think the standard of care would be for a patient like this. What are you excited about and what data to support it? So first case is a 75-year-old IGHV mutated trisomy 12 positive with CLL who's had two lines of therapy. First was BR. In 2016, unfortunately, they progressed and received ibrutinib three years later in 2019 and discontinued in the setting of rash and arthralgias. So either of you guys want to take this case on and tell me how you'd manage this patient in the setting of intolerance. Are you thinking about an alternate covalent inhibitor? Would you put them on a non-covalent trial? Would you use a PI3K inhibitor? How would you manage a patient like this? The first thing to say is biologically a fairly low risk patient. So I think you need to think about that when you're going to sequence therapy over time. And I think you be fairly confident you'll be able to control this disease for some time. I think clearly you've highlighted, Anthony, that there's data of acalabrutinib and xanabrutinib when used after ibrutinib intolerance. So I think either of those would be very reasonable options. Of course, in the future, we may well have the availability of pertabrutinib here and there's clear efficacy data and tolerability data suggesting that the pertubrutinib is active following ibrutinib discontinuation as well. So that may be an option in the future. I think I would personally probably stay in class. So probably switch to a covalent BTK inhib to either xanabrutinib or acalabrutinib. Um, the other option would be to give, I suppose, a break from a BTK inhibitor and switch to venetoclax-based therapy, which is not a wrong thing to do by any means. But I think I would probably switch to a second generation covalent BTK. Tal, I'm going to jump to the next case and give this one to you. So this is a similar story, similar patient anyway. 75-year-old, IGHV mutated, trisomy 12. They get BR, they progress. They go on to ibrutinib three years later, but this time they progress in the setting of a BTK C481 mutation and the acquisition of a deletion 17P. So how would you manage this patient? In this patient, there's no point in going back to a covalent BTK inhibitor because the patient has acquired a cysteine 4H1 mutation. So you really are limited to either changing the class of the drugs, which is venetoclax with rituximab, or the alternative option would be a non-covalent BTK inhibitor if you have a clinical trial where the patient can be enrolled into that trial and essentially can get the benefit of the non-covalent BTK inhibitor in this setting, which would be entirely reasonable. We know that the patient has acquired a TP53 mutation. So if you look at the Murano data, the Venar data would suggest that these patients would have inferior outcomes. So putting a patient on a trial where they can use non-covalent BTK inhibitor would be an entirely reasonable option, in my opinion, as well. Final case, I want Toby to briefly weigh in on management. So it's a 75-year-old IGHV mutated trisomy 12. They get BR, they get ibrutinib. But this time, let's say they discontinue ibrutinib in the setting of grade three or grade four AFib, 
They go on to get VR Murano style and then progress in 2023. So now you have some options. You could take a chance and go with a covalent inhibitor, though the prior event was life-threatening. You could do Venry treatment. You could use a non-covalent BTK inhibitor. So I'm just curious how you would tackle this question. So the first thing I do is I think I'd try and find out a little bit more about how severe their atrial fibrillation was, whether they were genuinely very decompensated, whether there was substantial clinical concern around that time, and clearly the patient stopped therapy. I think if I was going to use a BTK inhibitor again, I'd probably feel comfortable using Xanabrutinib. I think that's probably the BTK inhibitor. If you look across trials, probably the BTK inhibitor with the lowest atrial fibrillation rates. And so I think that remains an option. The data that we have with pertubrutinib so far, the atrial fibrillation rates are very low down at 2%. So I think that also is potentially an option. A 75-year-old, you may get a number of years of disease control with that. And although they have progressed relatively soon after venetoclax rituximab, they did have a reasonably durable remission. And so I think retreating with venetoclax monotherapy, I think, is also an option. I think um, all three of those are options, um, potentially sequentially. I think given that they were only on ibrutinib for two years, they're probably unlikely to be resistant to covalent BTK inhibitor. I think I'd probably test for the CIS481 mutation status because I think that might help. And if they have that intact, then I think I would probably use Xanabrutinib subsequently. I probably would, assuming they got on well with venetoclax-based therapy, I'd probably use that first venetoclax-based therapy because you may well not actually subsequently need any further therapy after, say, venmonotherapy. But I think you've got options here. But I'd use the agent that I thought would cause the least problems first. And then this patient's 75. Would you do something different if they were 45? Yeah, all of those three options would remain. And I have no reason to suggest that they'd be resistant to all of them immediately. So I think I would consider potentially allogeneic transplant or CAR-T if available further down the track. But I think I would probably exhaust the covalent BTK inhibitor and BCL2-based therapy first and then use a non-covalent BTK inhibitor to either bridge to an allo transplant or use sequentially prior to CAR-T. So I think that's how I would go about ordering therapy in a young high-risk patient. Great discussion. I want to thank my colleagues, Dr. Toby Ayer from Oxford and Dr. Tal Manier from Leeds. Love having a conversation with you on this topic. And then most importantly, I want to thank all of you for participating in this activity. Thank you so much. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is provided by Access Medical Education and is supported by an educational grant from Lilly. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com CME. Thank you for listening.